Well, good evening. Tonight, we're going to be looking in the book of Esther as we continue on our series of the good news of the Bible. Esther is, in my opinion, one of the most who have quite unique books of the Bible. Uh, in fact, there have been people who have questioned why the book of Esther is even in the Bible. After all, Esther's the only book of the Bible that never mentions the name of God. Throughout the whole book, God is never mentioned, he's never referenced, his name is never spoken, uh, his name is never written by the author. But despite the absence of God's name, it is clear throughout the book of Esther that there is no absence of God's work through the book. In fact, God's absence actually, in a lot of ways, invites the reader to see the way that God is acting and that God is working throughout the narrative of this story and God's activity in the life and the protection of his people, particularly God's working in the life of his people and through the protection of his people in a time when God feels silent. I think it's an interesting point and maybe providential in a lot of ways. And throughout the, our reading of the book of Esther, we will find that what, what appears to be coincidence is often God working providentially. So it's, of course, no coincidence that Matt takes some time to talk about God's silence because that will be a major theme uh, of my sermon tonight is the silence uh, of God or the apparent silence of God and God's working in a time when uh, he appears to be silent. God's working even when he appears to be si silent. God's sovereignty even when we don't necessarily feel his presence, that God is still in control of all things and God is still sovereign. See, Esther is written during the time of the exile. It's a, uh, a time in which, by all accounts, God probably likely seemed silent in the history of Israel. These events take place about 100 years after the Babylonian exile, and the Jews are unlike as the rule of the Persian Empire. And some of the Jews were able to return to Jerusalem, like Ezra and Nehemiah, as we let, read uh, and learned last week. But, but other Jews and communities of Jews remained uh, in Persia. And the book of Ezra, or the book of Esther, takes place in the Persian capital city of Susa. And the Jewish community at Susa was left with the persistent question in the wake of their exile. Do God's promises still apply to them? For these Jews, God feels silent, God feels silent and his promises seem forgotten. And the absence of God's name is not an accident by the author in the book of Esther. It is not the author refusing to give credit to God where God is working, but rather it is an intentional effort to illustrate the point that God is at work even when he seems silent. The book of Esther contains a series of bizarre coincidences, grand ironies, and dramatic reversals that all show that God is at work behind the scenes for the protection of his people and for the faithfulness of his promises. Tonight, I'm gonna to focus on three feasts through the book of Esther, three themes of the book of Esther, and three ways we see Christ in the book of Esther. I told Curtis that I had 12 points and I'd probably be speaking for a couple of hours 
And he said, I can't count that high because I don't have that many fingers. So Curtis, I've got, I've got nine. I do have that many fingers. <laughs> um, but the book begins with a feast. And we'll see a theme of feast throughout the book of Esther. And this is the first of three feasts in the book of Esther. This is the feast of the king. So the first feast, remember we have three feasts. The first feast is the feast of the king. Now the king of Persia at this time was something of a drunken pushover. Every, every time we read uh, himself and his pleasure, trying to display his power, uh, and he's something of a pushover, right? Anytime uh, his uh, right-hand man comes to him and says, hey, you should do this, he, he, he says, oh, okay, and he kind of gives way. He's, he's something of a, of, a, of a weak leader. And, but the story begins with a feast in his honor. And the, feast, the purpose of this feast is to display his power and to show his might and his wealth throughout the whole nation. And this feast kind of takes the, the semblance of, of himself as a leader. This is a, a pagan, drunken festival. It says there were no limits on drinking and eating for all who were in attendance. The feast lasts 180 days, so about six months. And the king is showing off his wealth and his power. And one of these days, he decides to show off his wife and bring his wife uh, Vashti before all the people so he can display uh, her beauty and the beauty that that belonged to him, right? He's displaying, even through her beauty, he is displaying his power. But his wife refuses. She says, no, I, I won't. And uh, this infuriates the king. And so the king does what, what the king does. He, he goes into a drunken stupor. And one of his, his right-hand men, one of the king's uh, messengers, persuades the king to make a decree. And so in his anger, in the king's anger, he makes two decrees. One, he banishes the queen. He banishes Vashti. And then he makes a decree throughout all of the nation that all wives are to be ruled over by their husband. The husbands are supposed to master over their wives and they're supposed to be property of their husbands. And so he makes this decree uh, for all the land. And again, he's making this decree out of, out of anger and he's making this re- decree at the request of one of his, uh, at, the one, at the request of one of his right-hand men. And we'll see throughout the book of Esther, the king makes several foolish decrees the king makes several decrees that he hasn't thought through. Several decrees that, that you actually see someone else working behind the scenes in. Someone else is plotting, and they're using the king. And they're using his, his maybe uh, foolish nature, his drunken stupor, his rage uh, to, to pass decrees that, that they actually want. So this decree is um, suggested at, at, by one of his right-hand men, and he signs it into law uh, over, over all the nation. And then the king, since he's banished his wife, he's banished the queen, he has to replace her. So he hosts uh, essentially uh, what is a a beauty pageant. So all of the young women from all the land come uh, to to stand before the king and and he chooses one to be his new wife. And this is where we're introduced to the character of Esther. Esther uh, is a Hebrew woman. She lives with, uh, takes her, sort of adopted father, Mordecai, who's not her biological father, but he takes her in as his own daughter. 
And this is where we're introduced to two of the main characters, Esther and Mordecai, right? And so Esther goes before the king and she's chosen. She's chosen to be uh, the king's new queen to replace uh, Vashti. And while this is happening, while this pageant, while this feast is going on, Mordecai, remember the adopted father of Esther, overhears a plot to kill the king. And this seems like just kind of a bizarre coincidence uh, throughout the story as as Mordecai is is just standing there and and happens to be in the right place at the right time to overhear the plot to kill the king. He warns the king and he's rewarded. And by this point in the story, we see Mordecai being rewarded for saving the, the life of the king and we see Esther being elevated to the position of queen. And so two Jewish people are um, beginning to gain stature and status in the land of Persia, in the city of Susa. And God's never mentioned, right? But, but you can start to kind of see how, how pieces are falling into place and God is clearly doing something and God is clearly at work and we don't necessarily see how yet, but, but God is putting together people in the right places. And he's going to work through them, right? But the story doesn't tell us that. The story still holds the absence of God's name. But we see these coincidences that happen, that that Esther is chosen by the king, that Mordecai overhears. And so God is working through those quietly and behind the scenes. But then we're introduced to another character, and this this is going to be kind of the the villain character of the story, and this is Haman. And Haman is the the right-hand man of the king. He's the second in command over the city of Susa and the Persian Empire. And Haman resents Mordecai because there's a decree that all you, and he only used to bow before Haman. But Mordecai refuses because Mordecai is a Jew and he only bows before the one true living God. And so this infuriates Haman. And so he goes to to the king and he convinces the king to make a decree. Now, again, we know the king is a pushover. The king is is, is just willing to to make decrees left and right on behalf of whatever his men say. He's, He's easily manipulated throughout the book of Esther. And so the king agrees to make a decree to kill all of the Jews. And Haman tells the king, he says, there is a group living in our land that they do not obey our laws, they do not worship our king, and they do not bow before us. They serve us no purpose. They must be handled. So he makes the decree that on the 13th day of the 12th month, all the Jews would be killed. And Mordecai, well, he finds out about the plot to kill the Jews. And Mordecai, being the adopted father, the adoptive father uh, of Esther, goes to her and, and, and tells her of this plot and asks for her help. And this is where we're introduced to the second feast of the book. So the first feast is the king's feast. Now we enter the second feast, and that's the queen's feast. See, Esther's faced with a predicament. She hears of the plot to kill the Jews. And she has some sway with the king as the queen. But under Persian law, if she approaches the king, she'll be put to death. And so she's faced with a predicament. If she does nothing, her people will be put to death. If she approaches the king, she'll be put to death. 
And Mordecai even proposes to Esther that she was made queen for this very purpose, for such a time as this. That's what the, the, the scripture says. For such a time as this, she was made to be the queen. So again, we're we God putting people in the right positions, even if he is not necessarily explicitly credited in the book. We see God working behind the scenes that, that Esther is put, is, is, has been made queen for this very purpose. And Esther responds bravely in one of the greatest lines in the whole book. She says, if I perish, I perish. And so she hosts a feast with Haman and the king. She approaches the king, she does, and she hosts this feast. And the king does what the king does. He gets drunk, he goes into a, a, a drunken stupor. And she invites them back for a, a second night of their feast. So the king and Haman both are, are to come and return the next night. And the king and Haman, they go their separate ways. Well, Haman runs into Mordecai. And remember, Haman hates Mordecai. He resents him. And so this infuriates him. It also excites him about the, the, the 13th day of the 12th month that's coming up. And so what Haman does is he actually builds this stake and sets it outside the city. And that stake is going to be the stake that he impales Mordecai with. And Mordecai is going to die at that stake. But the king goes, and the king can't fall asleep. And that's a coincidence in and of itself, that the king just happens to have trouble sleeping. And he calls on his servant. And he asks his servant to, to read the royal records to him. You know, just some good bedtime story, right? Who doesn't want their own royal records read to them? So his servant reads the royal records to him. And it just so happens, another coincidence, that the records that are read to him that night, the night after the feast with Esther, is the record of Mordecai saving the king. Just so happens, quite the coincidence. You see how God is at work behind the scenes in all of this? And the king says, we need to reward Mordecai for this. Well, the next night, the king and Haman return. The second night of the feast with the queen, the queen's feast. And this is where Esther reveals herself to the king. And she says, I am a Jew. She reveals her Jewish identity. And she accuses Haman of plotting to kill her and Mordecai. Mordecai, remember, saved the king. And the, and the king was just reminded of this last night. Well, the king is furious. The king orders Haman to be killed at the stake that was meant for Mordecai. And this moment right here in, in Esther chapter six, this is the moment where the story kind of pivots. The story switches tone, right? Everything was looking pretty, pretty bad for the Jews up until this point. Other than Esther being the right at the, at, at the hand of the, the queen and Mordecai having favor with the king, there's a decree going out that all of, the, all of the Jews will be killed. There's a stake with Mordecai's name on it that he is to be killed in. This is looking really bad. And then suddenly at the, at the feast with the queen, the second night, the story flips. And it flips on Haman bad. Because the stake that Haman had intended to kill Mordecai on, now Haman is to be put to death on. 
And this point on in the story, you start to see what God has been doing behind the scenes all along, where you can read this and see, okay, God is clearly working through these kind of bizarre coincidences. God is clearly setting things up, but we don't really see what he's doing yet. Until this point, it pivots and the story is revealed. What God is doing is revealed. And this is a, 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 a literary element that's used uh, heavily in the book, right? Uh, it's, it's sort of like, as a point of an illustration, uh, in the movie, if you're familiar with the movie Ocean's Eleven, there's a point where right, so, um, they're all down in the vault. They're robbing a casino, right? So George Clooney and uh, Matt Damon and Brad Pitt are, are robbing this casino, and they're down in the vault, and it looks like the SWAT team is about to come in and arrest them, and they're trapped in the vault. And you're like, it's over, right? Things are looking bad. But then you realize the movie pivots and, and you realize what's revealed is that, oh, what you thought was the SWAT team is actually just the rest of their crew in SWAT gear going to secure the money and steal the rest of the money out of the casino. And so you realize, whoa, okay, this was all part of the master plan all along within the context of the movie. And so this is what's happening in the book of Esther is suddenly it's revealed that, well, God has actually been working in these little details all along. God has had a providential plan all along. And where it looked like the Jews were doomed, now they are being delivered. And God providentially working through ordinary circumstances, working through bizarre coincidences, is setting things up to deliver and protect his people. And so Haman is put to death at the stake, at the stake that was meant for Mordecai. And Mordecai is elevated to the position of Haman. Mordecai is elevated. And then a final decree, another decree goes out at the request of Mordecai. Mordecai requests the king make an amendment to his original decree. Remember his original decree being that, uh, that all the Jews would be killed on the 13th day of the 12th month. Well, now he makes an amendment to the decree that on that day, on the day of the decree, the Jews can defend themselves. And not only can they defend themselves, but they can turn and they can go after and kill all who have plotted against them. And so finally, this day of the decree comes. The 13th day of the 12th month. And the family of Haman and other Persian officials who have plotted against the Jews come and they are slaughtered by the Jews. They are slaughtered by the Jews. And as a result, the people feast. The nation of Israel Feasts. And so this leads us to our third and final feast of the book of Esther, which is the Feast of Israel. The Feast of the Nation. The Jews in Susa destroy the family of Haman. They destroy the Persian officials who, who plotted against them. And Esther and Mordecai, they make a decree with the king that the Jews are to celebrate their deliverance each year with a two-day feast. The feast is called Purim. And thus the story ends. With three feasts, no mention of God. And yet the events of this story are far too ironic 
and far too providential to possibly happen on accident. It could only be the work of God. And where God is not mentioned, he is still at work. And so that leads me to the three themes of the book. The first is that God, first theme is God is at work in every detail of life. God is at work in every detail of life. And what may, be, may appear to be a coincidence to men is the divine sovereignty and the divine working of God. See, the book of Esther is full of these bizarre coincidences. The first coincidence is uh, the decree to banish the queen which makes a way for Esther to be chosen and Esther to be elevated to the queen, that she would have influence with the king. The second in Esther chapter two, verse eight, is that Esther's chosen without purpose, right? Not, not coincidentally, not without purpose, but for the very purpose of delivering her people, delivering the people of Israel through her influence with the king. Esther is chosen by the king. The next coincidence is right after, in, in chapter 2, 21 through 23, we see Mordecai overhearing the plot to kill the king. How could you explain that? What could, what could Mordecai have done to put himself in that position other than just be in the right place at the right time to happen to hear the plot to kill the king? And it was him hearing the plot to kill the king, which is what led the king to have sympathy for him, to elevate Mordecai's status and to have mercy on the Jewish people. Nothing I could have done. Nothing Esther could have done in these situations. Just happened to be in the right place in the right time. And then, then no greater coincidence than the coincidence of the king and the royal records, right? That the king just happened, he couldn't sleep that night. If the king falls asleep that night, no reading of the royal record, he wakes up the next day and the Jews die. The decree goes out and, and the Jews are killed. Haman kills Mordecai at the stake and the story ends there. But the king doesn't fall asleep, not by coincidence, but by the divine working of God, that God has a plan for even the little details of life, even the little tiniest details of this story, God is working through. The king couldn't sleep that night and so he has nothing else than the royal records read to him. And it just so happens to be the record of Mordecai saving his life. The night before Esther is going to reveal her Jewish identity, Mordecai's Jewish identity, and Haman's plot to kill Mordecai. The night before all that happens, the king is reminded of what Mordecai has done. And so what can appear to be coincidence, once you start getting all of this as it's adding up, you can't help but read this as anything, you can't read this as anything other than the work of God, the sovereign work of God through every little detail of life, through every little detail of his story. God is working to accomplish his plan. God is working to accomplish his purpose. The second theme is that God is at work even when he seems silent. Remember, the Jews here are exiled in a foreign land. Not only are they exiled in a foreign land, but this is a foreign land that now wants to kill them. Right? Haman brings about the decree that all the Jews would be killed. Now imagine, just put yourself, and I don't think we can really even fully grasp 
this kind of situation. Imagine if we had a date, the 13th of December, 13th day of the 12th month. 13th of December, it's gonna go, signed into law, all Christians are to be killed. And then you're just waiting. Just this countdown. What do you do? You run and hide? Probably, but not Mordecai, not Esther. They go to work. And God is at work through them. But I can imagine that if you're a Jew living in exile in a foreign land, and that foreign land has passed a decree that on a, on a specific day, people can come, they're going to come and slaughter you. God feels pretty silent. You're probably wondering, hey, I've read the, the Torah. I've read the Old Testament. I know that God is faithful to his promises. God has made promises to the people of Israel. Where is he? He feels silent. But God is at work for the protection of his people, and God is faithful to his promise even when he appears silent. See, silence can be such a ter- terrifying thing, especially when we're, you're awaiting, the people are awaiting deliverance. Reminds me of uh, a story in Africa one time. Back when I was 18 years old, I was in South Africa. I was in Johannesburg with my sister, and we were going um, to the little, little tiny country that's inside of South Africa called Lesotho, uh, and it's like way up in the mountains. So we were both in, in Johannesburg, and we are going to go to Lesotho for um, like four or five days, uh, kind of backpack through and do some hiking, and it was good stuff. Um, but to get there from Johannesburg to Lesotho is about four hours. And we had to take uh, a bus that could get us to the closest city, which was still about two hours away. And then there was a driver. So the, the backpacking, um, the, the lodge, the hostel that we were staying at, they recommended a driver who said, hey, if you're coming from Johannesburg, um, use the bus system, get to this city. And then he, here's the name of uh, our driver and he'll pick you up. You just arrange with him the details. So I arranged a couple days in advance, the details. Little did I know at this point, again, 18 years old, probably a, a foolish decision, uh, Johannesburg ranks uh, number three on, which number three, right? Top three, good, unless the category is most dangerous public transportation cities. <laughs> so we're getting on a bus <laughs> in Johannesburg, going about two hours away to meet a driver who I've never met. Uh, I've, I've arranged and coordinated details with them. Um, earlier, and we're on this bus. Our bus breaks down, so our, our plans are changing, our, our ETA is changing, and I, I've got his phone number, so I call nothing. Okay, no worries. I texted him earlier, and you know, a couple days ago, and he was communicating back and forth with text, so it's fine. I'll send him a text. Uh, our updated plans. Send him a text. Nothing. The whole day, I hear nothing from this guy. And I'm thinking, we're about to get dropped off in a random city in South Africa, and this guy who's supposed to give us a ride to where we're staying is just ghosting me. Silent, I'm here nothing. And so I'm starting, hey, a little bit, but I've gotta keep it together, because like, I coordinated all the details of this trip, and I can't let my sister think that like, hey, I let us here to die in you know, some sketchy parking lot in South Africa. Uh, another thing about Greyhound stations, or just bus stations in general, like long distance uh, bus stations, they're not notorious for uh, stopping in the best part of town. 
So we get dropped off in the city and I'm looking around like, I don't like where we are. <laughs> but there's a McDonald's and I'm like, okay, we're, you know, in South Africa, there's about three, three things that I'm gonna recognize and McDonald's, I, I know that, I, you know, some drawn to like the comfort of familiarity. Like, okay, Amy, let's go, let's go sit at McDonald's. We'll wait for this guy, he's coming. And I say he's coming, but I hadn't heard from this guy in hours. It's silent. When he finally showed up, it was like this moment of deliverance. I'm like, thank goodness he's here. And I told I said, you, you, you weren't responding to me. I, I wasn't sure like where you were or if you were coming. He said, I said, I'd be there, I'll be there. I said, I'd be there, I'll be there. I was like, okay. He's like, don't you trust me? I was like, well, I don't really have a reason to trust you. <laughs> I don't know you. Uh, but you know, foolish travel mistakes you make when you're 18. We get there, it's great. But there was this period where he was silent. I would not heard from this guy. I'm looking to this guy to get me to where I need to be. And I'm not hearing from him. And that is not a comfortable place to be. The Jews in this story are looking to God in their time of exile. And he is appearing to be silent. But what we see is that even when God seems silent, we know that he is working behind the scenes. Now there's this taxi driver that I don't know if is trustworthy or not, but I know that God is trustworthy. When God says he'll be there, he'll be there. When God makes a promise, he will see it through. And so God is faithful to his promises. Even God is never, he appears silence. The name of God never mentioned in the book. God is never actually credited with delivering the people, with delivering the Israelite people. But it is clear that it, is only, it was only the hand of God and the work of God that delivers the people. And so God is at work even when he seems silent. There will be times in our lives where God feels silent, where pain is real and God seems distant. And we have to trust that God is working. He is still faithful, even when it feels that he is silent. And the last theme, the third theme is that God works even through the schemes of the wicked God is at work even through the schemes of the wicked. Haman, the wickedness of Haman, was plotting to destroy the Jews. God turned that around, delivered the Jews, and brought justice. Justice by the means of Haman's death. Haman's punishment at the stake that was meant for Mordecai. Mordecai, through this whole story, which this whole story, remember, was a plot against Mordecai. This is Haman being enraged at Mordecai's refusal to bow down to him. And through this whole story, Mordecai is actually elevated to second in command, second in command over all of the Persian capital. And so what was meant for Mordecai's destruction was actually his deliverance and his elevation. God is at work even through the schemes of the wicked. The decree that Haman meant to crush the Jews, that on the 13th day of the 12th month, that the Jews would be killed, 
what actually happens on the 13th day of the 12th month. It's Haman's family, Haman's offspring, those who plotted against the Jews who are destroyed. God protects his people and God delivers his people. God is at work even through the schemes of the wicked. We sang a song at the beginning, again, not, not a coincidence. It says, even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good and for your glory. Even what the enemy means for evil, God works for good. And we know that Romans 8 tells us that all things are working together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. I want to finish tonight, I'm running out of time here. I want to finish tonight three, three ways we see Christ in the book of Esther. The first is just as Esther was an advocate to the king, Christ is our advocate before the Father. Remember, Esther was the advocate that went to the king to have him spare the Jews. Christ is our advocate before the Father to have him spare his wrath reserved for us. And that wrath was poured out upon his son. Hebrews tells us that we have, there's one mediator between man and God, and that is the man, Jesus Christ, that we have an advocate in heaven who speaks on our behalf to the Father. Christ is our advocate. The second, just as nothing could prevail against God's people in the story of Esther, nothing can prevail against Christ's love for us. Romans 8 again tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not sword, not wicked scheme, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. In the same way that God protected his people in the book of Esther, God is faithful to, was faithful to his people in the book of Esther, Christ is faithful to us today. And nothing will separate us from that love. And nothing can separate us from that love. Nothing will prevail against Christ. The last way we see, last place we see Christ in the book of Esther is the stake that was meant to kill Mordecai, just as the stake that was meant to kill Mordecai killed Haman, the cross that was meant to defeat Christ was the instrument that Christ defeated sin. All right, so if you remember the stake in, it, in Esther, Haman's stake is to, to, to he brings it to, to kill Mordecai, but he ends up dying on that stake. Well, the cross was built to, to crucify Jesus. The cross was meant to crucify Jesus, but our sins were killed and died on that cross. And so what should we as believers or unbelievers take away from the book of Esther? Well, as unbelievers... Know that Christ is at work and he has won our salvation. He has defeated sin so that we may have a way for salvation. And if we turn to him and we follow him, we put our faith in him, we repent of our sins and call on his name, we will be saved. And as believers... We know that nothing can prevail against us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God and the love of Christ, that our sin was put to death on the cross and nothing can take that away. And Christ is faithful to us to the very end, 
even when he, even when he seems silent, he is at work in our lives. He is working all things together for the good of those who love the Lord. We only have a small picture of what that looks like. But Christ, but, but God is sovereign. And God is sovereign over all of life. And he has the full picture. We trust in him. So he's working all things together. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for um, the opportunity to study your word, God, the opportunity to um, learn about uh, your faithfulness and your sovereignty and your providence. God, we pray, we pray that um, we know your word will not return void. And God, we thank you for your word, for delivering it to us and, and revealing it to us and entrusting it to us. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you.